You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he, he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is God's word. Thanks, Peyton. As I was thinking about this Jesus story this week, this is our uh, fifth story, our fifth uh, sermon in the series we're doing this semester on the parables, Jesus stories, where Jesus explains what God is like from Jesus' perspective. Jesus exegetes God. He explains God, shows us what he is like and what he does. And he's telling us all these stories so that we will understand that. And I was thinking about this particular story this week, and I was thinking about, boy, from my very earliest days, even as a kid, all I ever wanted to do was to be an international technology salesman. I've always loved gadgets and the newest, latest, greatest device. I've always loved these kinds of things. And all I ever wanted to do was to be a guy who traveled around in in the business world and sell technology, use my language skills and those kinds of things and just just be out there. And so I even started dressing like that at a very early age. Yep. Very early on. This is me at the age of seven. And uh, this is also the same year, incidentally, that I was voted most likely to be mistaken for Ted Koppel. It's true. (laughs) That hair was incredible as it still is. And I would dress like this because I thought one day I'm going to be a businessman. One day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work for IBM or a big technology company. At that time, back in those days, there was only one technology company, right? Everything was in black and white and there was one computer company and that's all that there was. And I did everything I could to build my identity and trajectory in that way. Went to college and I studied international business and marketing with French and Spanish minors and did all that and I got job in technology, and I started to travel internationally, and pretty soon that became who I was, so that when people would see me or I would meet someone at a social engagement, they'd say, well, what's your name? And then the second question was, what do you do? 
Now, they didn't really want to know about my gardening habits. What do you do meant, what is your job? What are you all about? And so I would tell people, I'm a vice president of sales for an international technology company. It was my way of saying, I am named, or I am called, or this is what I'm all about. I'm a vice president of sales for a technology company, for an international technology company. And it became all that I was and all that I did. And so, not surprisingly, it became pretty lame after a while. There's only so many Applebee's you can eat at after having spent an entire day in some boring conference room, having gotten off an airplane, and then getting back on an airplane and flying home. That's pretty much what it was, and that's all that it was. And yet, I would still tell people, I'm a vice president of sales for an international technology company. Until one 4th of July weekend, I was outside sitting off fireworks, probably illegally with my family, and I got a phone call on my cellular device. Back then, it was my Motorola StarTac flip phone. Oh, that's right. I was rolling deep with my phone. And my CEO left me a voicemail message alerting me that I would no longer be an employee of the company. No real explanation, just we're going in a new direction, and you're done. Boom, went the black cats. I walked back inside, listened to my voicemail message, and suddenly, I was an international technology salesman with nothing to sell and no travel and no technology. All that I was was suddenly removed. And it was like hell. Because who I was was suddenly completely taken from me. And some of you perhaps know a little bit about what that's like. Maybe for some of you, you know what it's like to experience that kind of identity disintegration. It's really what it was. It comes from being named by the wrong thing. Perhaps some of you, you've wrapped your whole identity in your job, what you do vocationally. You are an attorney, a doctor, uh, you're a preacher, you're a teacher, you're a whatever, and that's who you are. And when that thing is taken from you, you are disintegrated. Some of you, perhaps, your whole identity, your whole naming of yourself is your family role. I'm a mother. It's all I am. I'm a mom. It's what I do. I wear unflattering jeans, and I have applique vests, and that's just what I do. I'm a mom. Easy. I look forward to your emails. Save them. I don't mean that. I love moms. I love mine. I, listen, but perhaps if that's your only identity, if that is taken from you, you experience disintegration. Perhaps it's you're a parent, you're a, a husband, you're a wife, and if that becomes your naming, when that is removed from you, you experience a disintegration. Perhaps it's your resources, your wealth. Perhaps it's your education, your means, what you can accomplish, how good you are with your hands. And when you lose that false naming, you experience disintegration. In other words, you've decided to be named by the thing you think will help you, but it won't. It never does. And so this morning, we're going to hear Jesus We've already read the story, but we're going to hear Jesus teach about what it is to have a name. And so our big idea for the morning that comes from this Jesus story is simply this. Whatever you make your help becomes who you are. Whatever you make your help becomes who you are. And so even as I say that, I challenge all of us to take some honest inventory, to really be transparent and vulnerable with yourself and say, what are the things that I am using to be my help? What is it that is my help? Because that is who I am becoming. And when that is taken, I will be disintegrated. So 
We're in Jesus stories. We've spent several weeks talking through the gospel of Matthew. Now we're in the gospel of Luke. Last week we were in Luke chapter 15, and we heard the story of a lost sheep and a lost coin and two lost sons. Jesus is asking the hearers the question, how do you feel about that which is lost? How do you feel about that which needs to be helped? And he tells us about the Father, that he is undignified. He is ignoble in his rush, in his readiness to help. He stands ready and he runs and rushes forward to help us. But what happens when that help is rejected? So this morning... Because it follows what happens in Luke 15, we go into Luke 16, I get to talk about the doctrine of hell. Perhaps the least popular of all orthodox doctrines, I get to talk about hell. It's not usually the way that people grow their churches by talking about hell, but it is perhaps one of the most important doctrines for us to discuss. About three years ago, a comedian named Will Ferrell, you know who Will Ferrell is, you love Will Ferrell, he tweeted three years ago, Hell is for people who teach children that it actually exists. Now, that's clever. He's a funny man, ha, 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 and tragic. Now, interestingly, in 2010, the Barna Research Group did a poll of thousands of self-assessing, self-professing evangelical Christians. Thousands of people who said, I am a Christian, not just an American, I am an evangelical Christian. And of those thousands of people polled, 60% said they believed that hell and Satan were not actual, literal, real things. 60%. So if you happen to be one of those people that believes that hell and Satan are real and literal, you are now in the minority of evangelical Christianity, not to mention the world on the whole. And yet, Jesus speaks about hell extensively. In fact, Jesus talks about hell way more than anybody else in the scriptures, and that's by design. If it was Moses or David or Paul or Luke, whomever, talking about hell, it'd be really hard to swallow. But Jesus himself teaches and talks about hell over and over and over again. And so it's untenable. It is philosophically irresponsible to say, well, I like some things that Jesus said, like be nice to each other and hold hands and plant trees, but I don't like that stuff about hell, so I'm going to reject that. That is philosophically impossible. You can't do that. If he is Lord at all, then he is Lord of all, as we say. So let's hear what Jesus has to say about the doctrine of hell. Here we go again. Luke chapter 16 and in verse 19. He says, there was, and the text is, there's a certain rich man, a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. This dude is rolling deep. He's got purple clothes. Now, only a few of us can pull off purple clothes in this room, Dr. Carter. Come on now. He's got purple clothes. The purple fabrics do not occur in the wild. You have to take very expensive, thick fabrics and dye them purple. It was very, very expensive to do. It's only what the royalty would wear. And Jesus says he has fine linen. That's, that's his undergarments. This is the silkiest, nicest stuff you can find. So every time this guy takes a step, it's like a spa treatment. It's the nicest clothing available. He's wrapped in luxury. He has purple and fine linen, and he feasted sumptuously every day. Five meals a day, this guy's eating the super deluxe brother-in-law from Stanley's. This guy is 6,000 calories a meal. 
every time. It's not like a once in a while occurrence, like he just happens to go to a banquet every now and then. No, no, no. Every single meal is like Henry VIII. He's just bringing in the calories, okay? His life is luxury. Every day. Verse 20, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. Mm. So we get a really big difference here, two very big contrasts. There's a guy, a rich guy, who lives in a gated community and is just living in the lap of luxury. And then there's a guy named Lazarus who apparently is crippled because somebody else has to come and drop him off at the entrance to this gated community, which I'm sure the residents of this gated community really appreciated. Because this guy is not only a cripple, he apparently is also egregiously unpalatable. He's covered in sores. This isn't this isn't leprosy. This dude's just got some kind of nasty, oozing skin affliction. Can we talk about this before lunch? Sure, let's go on. Yeah. He's covered in sores, but wait, there's more. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. He just wanted the leavings, the scraps. It would have been something. Moreover, as if that's not bad enough, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, that's bad. The idea is horrific misery. It's bad enough that you can't even walk. It's bad enough you're covered in sores. But the dogs, and I'm not talking about sweet little house pets. I'm talking about the scavengers of the city would come by, and they themselves would get a snack from you. Ugh. It's about as awful as you can imagine. What's the point? In this culture, in this time when Jesus is talking, it was assumed that the, right, that the righteous had resources and that the under-resourced were unrighteous. That's why they were like that. Something happened. This guy's parents must have been real knuckle-dragging dirtbags for him to be in this bad situation. So Jesus is going to tell us something, that our externals do not necessarily determine what's happening on the inside. So verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Now, we don't want to make too much of this. We have to remember this is a parable. So no, we don't believe that that is the normative experience, that when you die, suddenly there's this great rush, and you get put up on all the angels' shoulders, and you're the parades for you, and they take you up to heaven, and everyone, no, 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 that's not the point of this parable. The point is that it's sort of an ignominious death. He just dies. We don't know anything else other than he's just dead. Perhaps he's there for a few days before anybody actually notices right? So he dies, and he's carried um, by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, and he was buried, presumably with great pomp and circumstance, and in Hades. So we need to talk about this just a moment, in Hades. Hades is not the same thing as hell. Generally speaking, there are some different words for hell. It's Gehenna, these other, other places, but Hades is most frequently associated with the Old Testament Hebrew word of Sheol, the place of the dead or the grave. We would say that Hades is a temporary holding area and that hell is later, that's eternal. In other words, we would argue fervently and vehemently for the existence of what we call an intermediate state. If you die, if you die and you are a believer, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says, you will instantly be in the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is present with the Lord, consciously, aware, present. And if you die and you're not a believer, you will instantly be in Hades, this temporary holding pen, this holding cell, until the great white throne judgment, at which point all unbelievers are cast into the lake of fire. That's hell for all eternity. And so we strongly reject any notion of this doctrine that's called soul sleep or annihilation. that says when you die, that's it. You, you just cease to exist. 
that is absolutely unbiblical and not the clear and compelling teaching of the scriptures. There is the experience of the succession of moments. Time passes. This matters immensely because there are those that will say, it doesn't really matter what happens in this life. You die, you cease to exist, and that's it. Fade to black, no problem. Not the clear, compelling teaching of Scripture. There is a conscious place for the dead. Okay? So, this rich man finds himself in Hades being in torment. Not in torture. He's in torment, anguish, significant discomfort, quite obviously. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, again, this is a story. We do not believe that people in Hades right now are having conversations with people in heaven right now. It's not like Mussolini and Hitler are yelling things at my grandmother. It's, it's, that would be kind of awesome, but that's not what's happening, all right? It's just for the purpose of the story. Jesus is being artful to kind of help us understand what's going on there, all right? And yes, I'm assuming that Mussolini and Hitler are in Hades. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and chalk that one up. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, ah, ha, ha, see, his identity is Jewish. And he still assumes that that's meaningful, his nationality, his ethnicity. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now, remember that flame. We're going to talk about this a little bit longer. This has caused people to say that it's the, the raging fires of hell that's different. That's the lake of fire. That's way later. That's eternal. Hades is a different, it's a different issue. He is in anguish in this flame. Now, this is really interesting. There is this uh, contrast that we're going to see now. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. In life, you had good stuff. In, la in life, Lazarus had bad stuff. Is the fact that you had good stuff, that you had wealth and means, is that why you're in hell? No. Is the fact that Lazarus was poor, is that why he's in heaven? No. It's what they relied on. It's what they made their God. What they attached themselves to that was their help. That's what's going on there. And Abraham says in verse... 26, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed by God in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. God has fixed a chasm. There is a difference between heaven and hell. There is a difference between the living and the dead, which is why no Bible-believing Christian should ever fear ghosts. They're not real. They don't exist. There may be something else happening. There may be a deceptive spirit, or you might have raccoons in your attic like I did, but it's not a ghost. We know that. We have to take the teaching of God's Word to help us rethink our thinking about some things. There's no such thing as ghosts. Maybe bad things out there really ticked off and trapped squirrels, but not ghosts, okay? This chasm is fixed, and we cannot cross from here to there. And the rich man says in verse 27, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. He's going to seem very charitable now, like he has a concern for others. Hmm. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Oh, he's not so noble after all. This is the blame game. This is blame shifting. All this regret and anguish and a failure for all eternity to take responsibility. It's not my fault. Nobody warned me. Somebody should have come and told me. If I would have seen a miraculous sign, if God would have just gone in my bathroom mirror and told me, I would have believed it. It's not my fault. 
It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. Someone else dropped the ball, and they didn't tell me what I needed to know. But Abraham said, verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets, meaning they have the Bible, the Old Testament. They have Torah, and all of the other literature after the Torah is called the prophets, from Samuel all the way through Malachi. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And this is Jesus' way of stinging the Pharisees right in the soul. You keep asking for a sign. You keep wanting me to do another parlor trick. You keep wanting me to do a miracle. You have God's word. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham. Isn't this amazing? Here he is in hell making demands, barking out orders, trying to tell other, other people what to do. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. No, 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 no. You just got to gotta amaze him with some sort of miracle. Interestingly, about two weeks later, Jesus will raise another man named Lazarus, not the same guy. He will raise another man named Lazarus from the dead, John chapter 11. And do the Pharisees repent and believe? No. It says that they make plans to kill Lazarus and Jesus. That's how this miracle and sign worked for their hard hearts. Verse 31, he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There will be a Lazarus that will rise from the dead, and the one telling this story will rise from the dead. It's Jesus telling us. Hell is for people who refuse to believe the truth of God's word, who are looking for some other proof, looking for some other sign or wonder or miraculous occurrence to prove it to them. And God says, you're, you're missing it. You're asking for your help to be something else. It's the wrong place. So, so what does this mean? What's Jesus really talking about here? What's the big, big thrust of this story? If you think the story is about a rich dude with a bunch of cash and a poor dude with nothing but open cankers, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that one of these guys is named and one of them is not. This is the only parable that Jesus will ever tell in which one of the persons in the story is named. And the name is no accident. The name is Lazarus. It is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Eleazar, Eleazar which means he whom God helps. That's what Lazarus means. Lazarus' whole identity is, God's my help. It's all I got. It's all I got. It's all I need. The rich man has no name. Why? Because the rich man has no name. All he was was his resources. And now, for all eternity in this story, he is a rich man, but with nothing. Still a rich man, but he doesn't have any stuff. That's hell. It's pitiful. It's pathetic. It's regret. And it is the place of blame shifting. Lazarus's poverty was not what sent him to heaven. Not at all. It's that he made God his help. It was his very name. Lazarus, what do you do? I get helped by God. What else do you do? No, that's it. I get licked occasionally, but really my whole jam is I, I, I get helped by God. That's, that's my whole identity. That's the thing that is always the same about me. My identity and my name has nothing to do with externals. My identity and my name has everything to do with whose I am and who helps me. So 
What Jesus is telling us is that these two characters, when they experience death, their reality fully flowers, fully explodes, is fully revealed. See, hell is where people get to keep the name they've made for themselves for all eternity. This guy was wealthy. He lived in the lap of luxury, and so now he's still a rich man, but he has nothing else because his false help was removed. Hell is where people get to keep the name they've made for themselves for all eternity. Is there anything wrong with being wealthy or a mother or a lawyer or a teacher or a preacher? No, of course not. But ask yourself, is that all that you are? If you lost that one thing, what would you be? Would you still be able to say, I'm Lazarus. God is my help. So that's what hell is. What is heaven? Heaven is where people get to keep the name God has made for them for all eternity. That's what heaven is. This is why Paul writes the book of Ephesians, and over and over and over and over again, he uses the greatest prepositional phrase in all of literature ever. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Hello, my name is Eric in Christ. That's what my name tag says. And he'll say it over and over again because that is our name. He is our help. We stand before God and he says, what are you doing here? And you go, help. Jesus says, done. And I am named according to the one that God himself loves and sent for my behalf. This is what heaven is. And so two things that we learn about hell from this story. Two things, two words, disintegration and justice. Let me talk about these very quickly. Number one, hell is disintegration eternally. See, the rich man says, I am in anguish in this flame. See, fire merely rearranges constituent parts. It doesn't make things cease to exist. And the Bible says over and over again that sin is fire. That's what Proverbs says. Sin is fire. It causes disintegration even while we live. Now, the opposite of that is Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 says this, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is integration, sin is disintegration, and hell is eternal disintegration. People who have tried for their entire lives to be away from God finally will be. The disintegrating work of this life will finally be culminated in the next. So the absence of God is, spiritually speaking, a raging fire. It is someone who has taken their life and has refused to read the owner's manual, saying, I know what's best for me. I told you, I, I, love, I love gadgets and I love, you know, toys and electronics and things, but Sometimes, sometimes I just, I'm not real smart with them. Like, I don't know if you noticed, I haven't sat down today because there's a, there's a little nail, there's a little, there's a little splinter right there. And so I think I'm just going to go ahead and hammer that back on. Here, no, okay, no, it's good. Now, you would never do that because the owner's manual says, do not use your iPhone as a hammer, stupid but like most males, I don't read the manual. I just go, oh, I'll figure this thing out later. And I begin to do things with this device that has been created on purpose 
for a purpose, and I begin to do things with it like lie and cheat and steal and engage in sexual immorality or substance abuse or gossip or whatever it might be. And then I wonder, why is the device breaking down? It's what happens. We disintegrate when we're not using the device as it was designed by our God. And this is what hell is for all eternity. The more we focus on ourselves, the more we center on ourselves, the more angry we get and the more we implode and the more we disintegrate. We experience a life apart from God. We are disintegrated. This is what fellowship is. It is life with, life with God. And in this life, even we as Christians, if and when we sin, we tear ourselves away from life with, and we walk around life without God. It is disintegration. It's a living deadness. Some of you know this, even perhaps this morning. This is why Matt's saying the cross is a good thing, do you see? Not only is hell disintegration, hell is justice. It is the most fair and just doctrine in the Bible. You know what's fascinating about this story? The rich man never once asks to get out, never once asks for forgiveness. We have this cultural misperception, I think from medieval fear art, that has all of these people trying to claw themselves out of hell, and God keeps slamming the door on their fingers. Not the biblical model of hell. The biblical model of hell is that people who are there by choice and for all eternity will not ask to leave. The door is locked, as C.S. Lewis says, on the inside. This is the biblical model of hell. In this life and in the next, they will fight and rebel against rescue. Lazarus is silent. He makes no plea. But the rich man continues to bark orders and treat Lazarus like a servant. Hell is miserable regret. It is blame shifting. This guy's trying to sound compassionate, but he's absolutely not. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. I didn't get a good enough sign. And Abraham says, you were given God's word. It is sufficient. And so again, as C.S. Lewis will say, in the end, in the end, God gives everyone what they want. What could be more fair? So whatever you make your help becomes who you are. Are you in Christ? Is he your help? See, one of the ways that we get to consider and contemplate this reality is by looking at Jesus himself. I've said that, that hell is disintegration. Hell is justice. And Jesus took both of these full on. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 11 says this. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. In other words, Jesus looks to the Father, looks at us and says, they're worth it. They are worth it. I will experience all the disintegration. I will experience all of the justice, and I will take it for them the doctrine of hell is marvelous because it demonstrates how much Jesus loves us. It would take all eternity to pay for one of my operating outside the character of Christ. Romans 14, 23 says that sin is anything done apart from faith. And that requires justice from a holy God. 
But in not eternity, in three short hours, Jesus takes all the disintegration, all of the justice that I deserve and you deserve and you deserve and of the whole world that will receive it. Imagine the weight and the burden and the crushing disintegration that Jesus experiences for those three hours as the Father turns his back. It's hard for us to appreciate and marvel at the amazing grace of our God unless we adequately assess the enormity of hell. It's a sin problem. He loves us. So that's number one. Number two, decide now to be aware of the poor that God puts in your path. It's so easy. We get really, really good at averting our eyes and distracting our minds from, from really recognizing the need that exists around us. So we say all the time around here, especially in the downtown context, see the wreckage. See the wreckage. All sorts of things. Not because that will make you righteous, but because you have already been made righteous. We can see those that God places around us. Since he is your help, you can assist others without fearing that he won't assist you. So I just want you to hear these nuggets of wisdom from Solomon in the Proverbs. Proverbs 14, 21. He says, Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. 1917, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. 2113, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. 2827, whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. So be aware of what's around you and enjoy. Say, okay, Lord, is this what you're doing? I find it interesting that the rich man calls out Send Lazarus. He knows Lazarus' name, which means his whole life, as he saw this guy in and out of his gated community, he stepped over him or went around him, but he knew who he was and why he was there, even knew his name and did nothing with his resources to bless him. And now he wants him to do his bidding. Secondly, or actually this is third, follow your owner's manual. Follow your owner's manual. This means that you have to appreciate that sin is fire. It is disintegration. Remember that God is your help. Remember your true name. Root out anything else that you are relying on to be your help. God's word, the, the prophets, the scriptures, and now what a blessing. We have the entire New Testament. It can and must be known and heeded and trusted. He is good. He is risen. He longs to be our help. Whatever you make your help becomes who you are. And so maybe you're here this morning. And you've got a whole different set of circumstances. Maybe you're still expecting something other than what God is actually offering. You're asking God to not be God and to be your help. You're just asking him to be your genie. That he's going to come along and just do what you want when you want. He will never oblige. If you think I'm going to be religious, I'm going to be good and moral, and then God's going to have to give me stuff, that's not a help. That's you trying to treat God like he's your servant. Or maybe you've tried the other path, to be irreligious, to be the captain of your own soul, and you will find yourself woefully and dangerously unqualified for the job. I can speak from experience on that one. Perhaps you've made some, un, uh, some other unworthy God your help. Watch as it will come crashing down. Will you believe what God's word says? That there is one who is wanting to be a helper. It attests that there is one who has risen from the dead, and we can believe it. He is alive. Therefore, he is king and the third member of the Godhead Trinity. One of his titles is 
our helper. God is our help. Maybe you're here this morning and you've forgotten your name. You've remembered that at some time, but you've gotten away from it and you're beginning to believe the lie that you are what you can achieve. You are what you can obtain. I just want to remind you, God is your help. That is your name. And so to help with that, I want to just read some of these psalms and let them wash over you. I'll encourage you to jot these down and to, to meditate on these for the rest of this week. Psalm 27, verse 9. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Psalm 40, verse 17. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. In Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Hell is for those who reject his help. So my prayer is that all of us will come to a very real, transparent, vulnerable, yielded, submitted realization that he is our help. Hell helps those who help themselves. Heaven is for those whose help is the Lord God. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you that you are our help, a very real and present help in our time of need. Father, we are in need because you have told us that there are two competing kingdoms in this age, kingdom of light and kingdom of darkness. And that darkness brings suffering and sometimes it brings trial and tragedy. So God, would you remind us of our true name? Would you clear away the, the debris and the clutter and the confusion and remind us that we are in Christ? You are our help. We are, I am he whom God has helped. Father, for those here this morning who do not know you, who are still trying to help themselves, would you move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son Jesus, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, who comes to take away the sin of the world and of that one individual? Would you give them the courage and the boldness to talk with someone that they love and whoever that might be, would you give them wisdom in response? Help them to be ready to give an answer for the hope that they have. Father, for the rest of us who are helped by you, and that's all we've got. Would you encourage us? Would you bring joy? Would you bring blessing above and beyond all that we expect? Would you do exactly as I have asked, God, as we approach your throne of grace with confidence, not because we deserve it, but because you stand ready to rush and help. We pray all these things, God, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thanks again so much for being here. I pray that God will be your help. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction. I want to remind you that Chauncey and Agapito are outside from Gospel Village. They would love to see you. So quick benediction, and we will be dismissed. Now, may our God who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, may he equip you for every good work, and may you do it. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.